Eve. So I want to get up to speed on a shocking story from Christmas Day, a bomb explosion in downtown Nashville and the strange circumstances surrounding it. Joining us now is award-winning CBS News correspondent Jim Crisula. Jim, thanks for joining us. Hi, Nikki. Good to be with you. So without sparing any details, because it really is such a strange story, can you walk us through exactly what happened on Christmas morning in Nashville from the moments leading up to the police being called to the scene to the time that the explosion happened? The explosion, Nikki, happened about 6.30 uh, Christmas morning, 6.30 Eastern time, 3.30 your time on Christmas morning. Apparently, police have been called. Someone called 911 and reported hearing gunshots. Police were dispatched to the area in downtown Nashville. It's uh, the intersection of 2nd and Commerce Street. Nikki, I've been on 2nd Street many times there. It was a quaint tree-lined street with mostly businesses, the majority of which I guess you'd say were restaurants and bars. Most of those buildings on 2nd Street in downtown Nashville, I'd say, were four, five, six stories tall. But police got there. They didn't find much of anything. But they did notice this RV was parked on 2nd Street, and it certainly was out of place for this particular neighborhood, mostly, again, businesses. And as they were there, they started, someone started playing a loudspeaker from this RV warning people to evacuate, to leave the area. And when police heard that, five or six police officers initially sent to the scene, they're, of course, being heralded as heroes because they undoubtedly saved many lives as they started getting people who live in apartments in some of those buildings out of the immediate area in harm's way. And then at some point, again, about 6.30 Eastern time Christmas morning, this RV blew up in a massive explosion, causing obviously very significant damage to many of the businesses on 2nd Street. Uh, this is only a couple of blocks, Nikki, off of famous Lower Broadway. And Broadway, for any of your many listeners who've been to Nashville, will know that Broadway is home to many of Nashville's famous honky-tonks, the, the country music venues, world-famous Ryman Auditorium is very close to all of this. This is only about a block or so off of the Cumberland River in downtown Nashville. Jim, it is a miracle that nobody was killed when this explosion happened. And I suppose that most of that credit is given or should be given to those police officers who you mentioned, who helped evacuate people who are getting a lot of well-deserved praise. Oh, very much so. Uh, obviously, they when they heard these warnings and, and suspected that this RV was certainly a suspicious vehicle. In, in fact, Nikki, even before the bomb went off, police had reached out to have the National Fire Department hazmat units and also the National Police Department, Metro Nashville, they call it Metro Nashville Police Department's bomb squad. So they had already been summoned. They were on their way to this intersection again at 2nd and Commerce when this bomb went off. So what do we know about the suspect in this case? He's 63. He was 63 years old. They believe he obviously perished in this explosion. Uh, He was said to be Anthony Quinn Wagner at this point. Uh, 
uh, I'm sorry, Warner. And we don't know a whole lot about him, Nikki, other than the fact that neighbors and some distant family members, extended family, have described him as a self-employed computer guru, if you will. He did various IT jobs, uh, so we don't know a whole lot more beyond that. Interestingly, one one interesting thing with, with so much of this being interesting is the fact that he sold his house in the metro Nashville area, a small town called Antioch. That's just that's part of the metro area of Nashville. He sold his house thanks the day before Thanksgiving, transferred the title of his house uh, to a, a woman in Los Angeles of all places. And the odd and ends job that he was doing, he sent a note again the day before Thanksgiving, uh, saying that he would no longer be working for those people. So again. Uh, certainly, the the motive here is what federal and state local authorities are trying to figure out at this point. There have been reports that this Anthony Warner's father had worked for what was called Bell South. Bell South was a regional uh, communications company here in the American South, and that company was eventually purchased by AT&T. One of the buildings, Nikki, that was heavily damaged in this explosion was a regional AT&T facility that, among other things, handled Internet, handled 911 calls for a large area from Tennessee, from the metro Nashville area, all the way down into Alabama and Mississippi. So, again, they're trying to figure out if perhaps he had targeted AT&T for some reason. Uh, We just don't know at this point. And, And, Frankly, this obviously is a situation with the suspect dead. We may never know a motive with this. Mm-hmm. It is such a strange story, especially because it seems that the suspect was playing these messages from the RV, warning people to evacuate from the area. So it doesn't seem as though uh, they wanted anyone to be hurt necessarily. I mean, I don't know how you let off a bomb in downtown of any city and not expect someone to be hurt, but was playing these messages, warning people to evacuate before the bomb went off. What is the motive then? There's such a big question mark around what this individual was trying to achieve. Sure. And on a Christmas morning, no less at 630, when there would probably be very few, relatively very few people walking around uh, and with, uh, let's say he had decided to do this on a, a normal Saturday evening, let's say whatever, 7, 8 p.m. on again, lower Broadway, just a couple of blocks away where they're normally pre-pandemic would be hundreds, if not thousands of people walking around and going again into these various country music venues that Lower Broadway is known for in Nashville. What are local leaders, uh, politicians, officials saying about this bombing? What has their reaction been? Well, first off, they say that they think certainly this is an isolated incident. They don't feel that there's any ongoing threat or there has been any ongoing threat in Nashville since this happened again Christmas morning. Uh, but again, they, like everybody else, trying to figure out why why Nashville, why why there of all places. And, and I think, Nikki, it, it reminds me somewhat of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 when I was there for, for days and weeks afterwards. This, uh, very, there was a very strong sense in Oklahoma City following that uh, of why here, why in Oklahoma City, why in America's heartland of all places would somebody do what timothy mcveigh did there and i think to a lesser degree 
because, again, obviously, uh, we didn't see the enormous loss of life at Nashville that we did in Oklahoma City all those years ago. But, again, there's some somewhat of that sense, I think, in Nashville among local elected officials. Of why, why, did they, why did he pick that particular area in, in, in that particular city? Jim, thank you so much for your time. Really interesting stuff. Nikki, I appreciate it. Thank you. Mary, uh, happy new year to you. Did you watch any of the World Juniors Hockey Tournament during the holidays? I watched the Russia-US game on Canada Day. Russia won 5-3. So they're both in Group B. Meanwhile, Canada right now ranks number one in Group A. We had a huge victory over Germany on Saturday night. I'm not sure if you watched this game, but the final score was 16-2 in favor of Team Canada. Then on Sunday, we beat Slovakia 3-1. Team Canada will play again on Tuesday afternoon against Switzerland. So they're playing in the bubble right now in Edmonton. Isn't it nice to watch some international competition again after so many sporting events were completely upended this past year because of the COVID-19 pandemic? And when it comes to sporting events, it doesn't get much bigger than the Olympics, does it? which of course, as we remember, this past year was canceled or postponed until 2021. Now, if you remember, Team Canada was actually the first to say that we would not be sending our athletes if the games, in fact, were to go ahead. And I remember when this happened because I remembered realizing this really interesting pattern in Olympic disruptions. So at the time, I put together a feature on this. And since here we are at the end of the year, I thought it would be nice to replay that feature as we look back on the events of 2020. So I want to share that with you here now. Canada will not be participating in the 2020 Tokyo Summer Olympics. The announcement was made on Sunday, March 22nd. Canada is the first country to announce a pullout of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Team Canada tweeted about their decision on Sunday, citing concerns over the coronavirus and adding, quote, postpone today, conquer tomorrow. Canada will not send athletes if the Olympics are held in 2020. Basically, the COC has said if you postpone the Olympics to Tokyo in 2021, that's fine, we will go. We are not going this year. Australia has since followed suit. There's only been a handful of times in modern history since the year 1900, which is the first year that Canada participated in the Olympics, that we as a country have missed the Games. Of course, there were no Olympics during World War I, but following that, an interesting and coincidental pattern has emerged. The year was 1940, and the world was at war for the second time that century. Wheeling east after sealing the police pockets, the 1st Canadian Army commences a tremendous drive for the River Seine. Exactly 80 years ago, in the midst of World War II, the 1940 Olympics were cancelled. Where were they supposed to be held? Tokyo, Japan. So 80 years ago this year, the Tokyo Olympics were cancelled not because of disease outbreak, but because of the outbreak of war. Fast forward to 1980, exactly 40 years after the defunct Tokyo Games, and 40 years ago today, what was going on in the world? Even though most analysts knew there were thousands of Soviet troops in Afghanistan, last week's coup d'etat caught most of them by surprise. Maybe it shouldn't have, because at least in hindsight, there were plenty of indications of what the Soviets were contemplating. 
By all accounts, the Soviet takeover was meticulously planned and skillfully executed. The Soviet move has thrown this part of the world into turmoil. In protest of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, U.S. President Jimmy Carter announced America's athletes would not attend the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. Nearly 100 of the American athletes personally affected by the president's order to boycott the Moscow Olympics went to the White House today to hear a personal plea for support from the president. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. He walked into the East Room to silence, the first time in his presidency that no one applauded his entrance. It was a grim moment for President Carter and the young athletes. And the president told them, for the people of Afghanistan, it was a grim issue. Thousands of people's lives have already been lost. Entire villages have been wiped out deliberately by the Soviet invading forces. I can't say at this moment what other nations will not go to the Summer Olympics in Moscow. Ours will not go. 65 other nations followed suit. In solidarity with our southern allies, Canada also boycotted the Games. The announcement was made in the House of Commons by the Minister of External Affairs. We have decided that the circumstances leave us no choice but to urge the Canadian Olympic Association to inform the organizing committee for the 1980 Olympics that Canadian athletes will not be participating in the Games. We ask Canadian athletes and Canadians generally to support this important decision which has been taken in the national interest. The decision meant that 211 Canadian athletes would not compete in that year's Games in Moscow. In the end, the Olympics in Moscow went on as scheduled, although only 80 nations sent athletes, the smallest number since 1956. The timing could not have been more deliberate. Hours after runners in New York City began carrying the Olympic torch cross-country to Los Angeles and the site of the Summer Games, Soviet commentators went on television and radio. The Soviet National Olympic Committee has announced it considers impossible the participation of Soviet athletes in the 23rd Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Forty years later, here we are today. Coincidentally, following that 40-year pattern, Canada will not be participating in the Summer Games in Tokyo, nor will the rest of the world. The Tokyo Games cannot go ahead as scheduled this year. Opposition to letting the Games go ahead in July spiked sharply over the weekend. USA Swimming and USA Track and Field called for the 2020 Olympic Summer Games to be postponed due to growing coronavirus concerns. And Olympic committees in Norway and Brazil have endorsed postponing And on Monday, Australia's Olympic Committee said they would be pulling out of the 2020 Games. On Tuesday, March 24th, Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe officially requested that the Games be postponed for one year until 2021. Japan has asked for the Olympic Games to be postponed for a year. Well, Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe had a meeting with Thomas Bach, the IOC president, this morning about what to do. They'll still be known as the 2020 Games, but we'll know that Canada was the first nation who said we will not attend if they were held this summer. While postponing the Games is unprecedented, you can add it to the list of odd milestones in Olympic history that we seem to experience every 40 years or so. For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Now, when you think back on this past year, what do you think were the biggest stories in news? 
It's tough, obviously, because the pandemic was such a massive news story this past year, uh, unmatched in size and scope to anything that we've seen in probably decades. But there were a lot of other big stories this happened that happened this past year, other than just the COVID-19 pandemic. If we think back to the month of January, there was the downing of Ukraine Flight 752. And I remember at the time just feeling this incredible sadness, hearing the stories of the victims, the 57 Canadians killed, the newlyweds, the students, the parents. And then in April, after the pandemic had already started, there was the shootings in Nova Scotia in which 22 people died. There was the snowbird crash in the BC interior. There was the We Charity scandal, which was the third ethics investigation for the prime minister. They weren't all bad news stories, though, right? One of my favorite stories from this past year, from 2020, is when a man named David Ayers, the Zamboni driver for the Toronto Maple Leafs, as well as their backup backup goalie, got a chance to go in net for the Carolina Hurricanes, and they even won the game. It was the the perfect feel-good news story, the kind of stuff that they would make a Disney movie about. It was a great story. But considering how much news there was this past year, those being just a tiny, tiny sample of examples... I can't believe that Global News's Mike Armstrong was able to review the past 12 months in just six minutes. But that's exactly what he has done. And I think that you'll enjoy this next feature as Mike looks back on this past year, 12 months in six minutes from A to Z. It's safe to say that as the world rang in 2020, we expected something different. To talk about the year that was, you have to start by pointing out how it stands out. And so we begin with A is for aberration. We totally deserve a do-over, and Canada has to up its fireworks game. The people of this nation have spoken. B is for, well, this one's pretty obvious, Biden. But our American neighbors also got a former Montrealer as VP. We did it. We did it, Joe. I'm about ready to walk into the ED. Even more obvious, C is for COVID-19. What we've been through for basically 10 months and counting still feels impossible. I made it! The good news this month has kind of been a nice change. COVID, 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 COVID. D is for, let's get this one out of the way early too, Donald Trump. I easily win. You've got to hope in 2021 we go maybe just a few days at a time without the White House making headlines. It's not racist at all, no. Not at all. Shit's Creek! E is for Emmys. Shit's Creek won all seven comedy Emmys. Shit's Creek. Shit's Creek. Shit's Creek. It reached the point where it got awkward. Okay, the internet's about to turn on me. I'm so sorry. Times have changed. F is for football team. Washington dropped the name Redskins. McGill University dropped Redmond. And life went on. It was a joke. G is for going and going. Captain Tom Moore hoped to raise a few hundred dollars by walking around his yard. The Brits now closing in on $60 million. Oh, and he was also knighted. That was really outstanding. Crazy. H is for hadrosaur, the type of dinosaur discovered by a 12-year-old paleontologist from Calgary. At that point, you can't really say aspiring paleontologist. Everything was perfect, and they impeach. I is for impeachment. This one made the list two years in a row. Unfairly. Did nothing wrong. Oh, whoa. Who are you? I'm Julie from Four Months in the Future. Actually? J is for Julie Nolke. Oh. 
a comedian out of Toronto whose YouTube page made me laugh over and over in a year that didn't really lend itself to that. You know, I can really, oh, I can really use some good news. <laughs> K is for Kim Jong-un. The rumors were wrong, still alive and dictating. L is for legend. The entertainment industry lost several this year. Bryant for the win! M is for murder hornets, the story that made everyone throw up their hands and say, oh, sure, of course. Murder hornets? Murder hornets! N is for New South Wales, the Australian state hit hardest by the brush fires in January. Basically, the disaster that kicked off 2020. O is for obscene. We all watched that video of George Floyd being killed. It still doesn't make sense. And never will. P is for Port of Beirut. The explosion in August did close to $20 billion in damage, left 300,000 people homeless, and killed more than 200. It was raining glass all over the city of Beirut. Q is for questions, which is what a lot of people still have after April's mass shooting in the Maritimes. And for R, we'll go with remember. 22 were lost in that tragedy. Among them, Constable Heidi Stevenson killed protecting others. Another tragedy, S is for stalker. It was the call sign of the Canadian military helicopter that crashed off the coast of Greece in May. We lost four air crew and two sailors. Oh, I just want to be in Canada. T is for tourism. It felt at first like only cruise ships would be affected by the coronavirus. It ended up being basically all tourism everywhere. U is for umbrella. They represent resistance on the streets of Hong Kong. V is for victory. Alexander Lukashenko claims to have won Belarus's August election. Canada and other countries do not accept the results. The protests continue. Not exactly pleasant. W is for word of the year. I'd have gone with swab. I also could have gone without being swabbed. Really uncomfortable. It's back to work for New Zealand. X is for expectations. Well, maybe more like hopes. The country claimed victory over the coronavirus. I hope the rest of the world feels more like New Zealand next year. I did a little dance. Why is for yapping? Keep yapping, man. The, the presidential debates were strange, but that first one really went off the rails. All right, so now, mail service delivers a gentleman in the final. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And finally, Zed is for zeal. It's how I'll celebrate next Christmas and next New Year's. There are traditions in my family, as I'm sure there are in yours, and I miss them in 2020. You know what? They will be back. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and honestly, all the best in the very welcome new year. 
When you're driving around town, how often do you see a distracted driver? Someone on their phone, someone searching through their glove box to find something while they're speeding down Highway 99, someone, I don't know, painting their toenails on their dashboard, whatever. How often do you see someone doing something they are not supposed to be doing while they are driving? Well, Mario Canseco is the president of Research Co., and he asked British Columbians, how often do you see distracted drivers? And what do you think should be done about it? Do you think that the penalties that currently exist are stiff enough, or should we make those penalties a little bit harsher? Mario joins us now. Hi, Mario. How was your Christmas? It was great, Nikki. Thanks for having me. It was a very great Christmas, different from other ones, but uh, fun nonetheless. (laughs) Right, a little bit more low-key, but I'm glad that it was a nice Christmas nonetheless. It was, definitely. So, Mario, when you did this survey... How many people said that they frequently see distracted drivers on the road? Well, this really caught our eyes because we've had legislation now in the books for more than a decade to deal with distracted driving. And we thought it was going to be roughly a third of BC residents who witnessed a driver talking on a handheld cell phone, texting while they were driving over the past month. But the number was uh, significantly higher. It was 55%. So more than half of us recall being in the car, watching somebody who was driving, using a handheld cell phone in contravention of existing regulations. So definitely a higher number than what I was ready to see on the, once we uh, had all of the data ready. That is a bit surprising, especially as technology improves, where more people have Bluetooth technology in their cars. Well, it's an important situation because, you know, there are ways if you really need to be uh, speaking to somebody who's not in the car, uh, you know, there are ways to do this. There's handheld, uh, sorry, uh, hands-free uh, devices that, that you can rely on, which are legal. Uh, but the numbers were quite high. And, and what was striking is we also expected this to be more of an urban issue. Uh, but we only have 49% of Metro Vancouver residents who saw somebody using their handheld cell phone while they were driving. Uh, the numbers are actually higher elsewhere in the province. So uh, it's all over the place. It's not something that you can uh, essentially say Metro Vancouver uh, is at the forefront of. Yes, when I was looking through your results, I also found that really, really interesting and surprising to hear that residents of Metro Vancouver were the least likely to say that they have seen a distracted driver recently. So which regions of the province said that they see the most distracted drivers? Uh, Number one by far uh, is a tie between Southern British Columbia and the Okanagan, 64%. And also Vancouver Island at 64%. So it's almost two out of three residents who say, yeah, I saw somebody who was doing something they weren't supposed to be doing behind the wheel. Certainly higher than what we have here in Metro Vancouver. And why is that? Why do you think that the results in Metro Vancouver indicated something much lower than what you were expecting to find? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. Because of the pandemic, we are not driving as much as we used to. Maybe we have a lot of Metro Vancouver residents who aren't commuting to work, who aren't doing the things they were used to doing, and maybe they haven't noticed as many people talking on their phone. It's a little bit different outside of Metro Vancouver, where we haven't really seen a situation where a lot of people are working from home, certainly not at the same level that we have in Metro. So because you're driving more outside of Metro Vancouver, you're more likely to witness something like this. And I wonder as well if it has something to do with enforcement. I am only speaking from personal experience here, so I'm not sure exactly what enforcement is like in, say, uh, Abbotsford or in Kelowna or in Prince Rupert. But I know in Vancouver, where I live, that the police are known to hang out at an intersection like, say, I don't know, Broadway and Canby, something like that, you know, dressed in their 
plain clothes. And if they see someone texting while the light is red, they can go up and knock on your window. And Well, I haven't, of course, experienced this firsthand myself. I've heard of them doing something similar to that. So I think that, you know, enough people in urban areas have heard those types of tales that you're more conscious. You know, you're not going to be on your phone at a major intersection, even if the light is red, because you don't know if one of those pedestrians on the street corner is, in fact, a police officer who might be coming to knock on your window and write you a ticket. Well, it's definitely something uh, that happens a lot in specific areas of the province. You know, we have seen a little bit of evidence uh, anecdotally about people who say that this happened to them or that it's happened to somebody they knew. Uh, The fines are uh, pretty steep. You know, we're talking about $620 for a first-time infraction based on the fine and the four penalty points that you get on your insurance premium. So it's a big fine, and we have uh, over half of British Columbians, 52%, who believe that the fine is about right. Uh, But when you look at others, you know, by a two-to-one margin, more people are likely to say that the fine is too low. They want something that is higher. And only 14% who believe that $620 for a first-time offense is simply too high. Yeah, see, it's interesting because if you're worried about getting a ticket, then you're probably not going to be on your phone as often. If that's what's keeping you uh, from driving and texting, it's that fear of getting a big ticket. Well, you know, that could perhaps work. Like you said, the fine is a fair chunk of change, $368 uh, plus four penalty points in your insurance penalty premium, which adds even more change on top of that. So how many people said that they think that penalty is sufficient and who said they want to see stiffer penalties, for fines? Well, there's definitely an appetite for a different type of uh, enforcement on this issue. Uh, We have 54% of British Columbians who say that somebody who gets caught emailing, texting, or using an electronic device while they drive should be suspended for a year. You know, this is a fairly significant uh, penalty, something that other countries and other jurisdictions in North America have implemented. Uh, Also, doubling the fines, $1,240. This is a big chunk of money, twice as much as now. 59%. 59%. But the other one that was quite striking is 70% who say that we have to seize the electronic devices of repeat offenders. If this happened to you before and you did it again, uh, many, many British Columbians, 7 out of 10, are saying maybe you shouldn't really have an electronic device while you drive. I'm going to open the phone lines here and ask our listeners what they think about this. So 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898. And of course, you can always call us on our buzz line as well, 604-331-BUZZ. And let us know, Mario, as you've been saying, people calling for stiffer penalties, something a little bit harsher, like, for example, a phone being taken away if you're caught distracted driving. I think that your results have been very interesting, and I'd love to hear what our listeners have to say about this as well. So 604 604- 280-9898. Mario, was there anything else in your research that really stood out to you? Well, one thing that was quite striking is uh, we usually have a situation where voters who are more of a center-right tilt, you know, and I'm saying right now in this instance, BC Liberal voters tend to not be very supportive of something like this. There's a little bit of, of a libertarian streak to some of these voters. Uh, but on this particular issue, if you voted for the BC Liberals or the BC NDP, you support having tougher penalties. The strongest level of support for tougher penalties on these BC Green Party voters, 66% of us say we need bigger penalties. So it's quite striking. You know, usually you have a situation with a policy that is implemented where if you voted for the government, you're happy with it. If you didn't, you're not. But on this one, the BC Green Party voter is saying we need tougher legislation to deal with this issue. When you think of a puppy, you think of something cute and fuzzy, right? Well, most of the time anyways, because the puppy that we're about to talk about in this next story, and I say this jokingly, 
is one of the ugliest things that I've ever seen. <laughs> and for very good reason, this little guy is 57,000 years old. In its defense, who would look good after 57,000 years, right? The mummified wolf puppy was discovered in the thawing permafrost near Dawson City, Yukon. And joining us to talk about her research, which examines this mummified wolf puppy, is Julie Meachin, Associate Professor of Autonomy at Des Moines University. Julie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really love stories about interesting fossil discoveries and the like in Canada. And one thing I particularly enjoy about this story are the details around how the mummified wolf was found. In true Yukon fashion, it was discovered by a gold miner. Yes, that's correct. Uh, his name is Neil Loveless. Interesting. So it's it's so on brand for the Yukon, isn't it, for a gold miner to have discovered this this mummified wolf? What do we know about the short life that this puppy lived? Well, uh, from her body, uh, we can tell a whole bunch of different things. Um, for example, from her X-rays, uh, we found out that she was only about six or seven weeks old when she died. Um, from her DNA, we can tell that she is. In fact, related to other wolves that lived in that area during the Ice Age. Um, and from both her DNA and her um, isotopes, we know that she was about 57,000 years old. Um, and then the coolest thing, I think, from this study, um, from her isotopes, we can tell that her diet consisted mostly of aquatic resources or salmon. It is incredible that we have the technology to get so specific like that, isn't it? Yes, it's, it is incredible. It's a really fun project. What does this mummified wolf puppy look like? Because I went to the Yukon a couple of years ago, and I learned about some of the more unusual creatures there who used to roam this part of the world, like the two-meter-long giant beaver. So I imagine that this wolf doesn't necessarily look exactly like the wolves that we're used to seeing today, or does it? So that's a great question. And it, most of, mostly it does. Um, if you saw this wolf today, you would say, wow, that's a pretty big wolf. But you would definitely be able to identify it as a wolf. So while the wolves of the Ice Age were a little bit bigger and more robust than the wolves we have today, they look very much like the wolves that we have around today. What happened to the wolves of the Ice Age? Why don't we have that exact species around today? Well, we do have the same species. We just don't have the same uh, subspecies, and we don't have the uh. same genetic diversity. And basically, we think what happened to that group of wolves is the same thing that happened to all the other megafauna that went extinct. Um, it was a major event, um, most likely a climate event with maybe some humans added in for good measure. And uh, most of the big herbivores went extinct, and so most of the big carnivores went extinct as well. Ah, so it wasn't just that they had too hard of a time hunting that giant beaver. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and this discovery really is interesting, but what makes it so unique? Um, I think one of the things that makes this so unique is that this mummy is so well-preserved. Um, she's got all her soft tissues, all her skin, most of her hair. And these kinds of mummies are really uncommon in North America. They're much more common in places like Siberia. But in Canada and Alaska, they're just not very well, uh, they're not very well known. There are a few, but they're few and far between. So um, she's a very rare find. 
How did that gold miner who found this wolf puppy realize that he'd stumbled upon something quite special as opposed to something that's just a little gruesome? Um, he actually didn't know at first. Um, when the puppy came out of the, the sediment, um, he actually thought that it was likely a little puppy that was a casualty of a gold miner back in the 1800s. So he assumed that it was somebody's pet that had died, you know, 200 years ago. He had no idea that it was 57,000 years old. Isn't that fascinating? The research that you do, it really does sound interesting. You must love what you do. I do. I do. <laughs> what has been some of your other favorite discoveries, uh, particularly from this region of the world, if you have them? Um, so this, uh, this is actually my first time working in the Yukon. Um, I'm working with a friend and collaborator um, from the Yukon Beringia Interpretive Center, Grant Zazula. So he is the person that actually brought me in on the project, and then I ended up leading the project. But um, I have not done any work on Yukon animals before, but I do plan on doing some in the future. <laughs> I guess you, you got a bit hooked, eh, after coming across a, a discovery like this one? Absolutely, absolutely. That is fascinating. Yes, I've been to that Yukon Beringia Discovery Center, and it really is a, a great spot to visit. I know that, of course, travel is a, a bit limited right now for so many people, but I do recommend for anyone who's listening who hasn't been up there to consider exploring it in the summer of, of 2021, perhaps. Now, with those travel restrictions in place, have you found that that has impacted your ability to do this type of research? Unfortunately, it has. Um, most museums are closed right now, so not only can I not get out there because I can't travel myself, but museums are closed and they won't even send out loans right now to different scientists. So it's basically a, a time of stagnation for scientific research. Hopefully we can all get vaccinated soon and get back to doing what we love. Yeah, and as we look towards better times in 2021, I'm sure that we'll look towards more developments with the research that you're, you're currently conducting. What do you hope to discover moving forward with this mummified puppy? Um, so two of the things that we hope to do in the future are to do a micro CT scan of her tissues so we can get a non-invasive way of looking at all her soft tissues so we can figure out what she looks like inside. And then the other, uh, the other next venture we're thinking about with this pup is actually trying to do a non-invasive way of examining the parasites that she may have had. So 57,000-year-old roundworms. Wow. It's, again, incredible that you can get so specific in, in what you're looking for with the technology that's available. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty incredible. We're bringing in a parasitologist to help us with the roundworms. So they, they were the one who actually told us that uh, you could get uh, evidence of roundworm eggs from a 57,000-year-old mummy. I was pretty flabbergasted myself. What a crazy year this has been in almost every sense. And the dramatic events of this past year were certainly observed in the world of sports as well. So let's take a moment now to take a look back at some, not all, but some of the major events that occurred this past year in sports. On January 5th, at the World Juniors, Canada beat Russia 4-3 to win gold. The Montreal Alouettes' ownership saga ended on January 6th. The team was sold to the league. On Monday, CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi introduced the new owners of the franchise, Gary Cern and Sid Spiegel. Please take it the right way. The Argos suck. 
On January 14th, the Toronto Raptors were awarded the NBA's first ever Team of the Year award. In Major League Baseball, the Astros found themselves in hot water. A team embroiled in baseball's worst cheating scandal of the past century. Canadian Larry Walker, who's from British Columbia, was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. On January 15th, Canadian professional wrestling legend Rocky Soulman Johnson passed away. And who could forget the shocking tragedy on January 26th? We're coming on the air with breaking news, very sad news to tell the sports world. The L.A. Times is reporting that retired Los Angeles Lakers basketball star Kobe Bryant has been killed in a helicopter crash. It happened this morning. The chopper reportedly went down just before 10 a.m. local time in Calabasas, California. Kobe Bryant was one of the greatest players ever. He had that DNA that that very few athletes can ever have. News of his tragic death in a helicopter crash along with his daughter Gianna was felt throughout the sporting world. We all feel a a deep sense of loss. And so many millions of people loved him for so many different reasons. In Los Angeles, fans gathered outside Staples Center where Kobe Bryant helped the Lakers hang five championship banners and where his farewell game in 2016 was an astonishing 60-point effort. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. God, I love you guys. And uh, what can I say? Mamba out. But January also brought joy as soccer fans watched Canadian Christine Sinclair make history. Sinclair wide open. Is this it? It is! Sinclair has done it! The Queen of the North with goal number 185. With that goal, she became the world's all-time leading goal scorer. Canada's Christine Sinclair, a national treasure, and history is hers. Chiefs are Super Bowl champions here in Miami. Right at the start of February, the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl, beating the 49ers. The Toronto Raptors set a Canadian record with their 15th consecutive win. Meanwhile, a U.S. Sheriff's deputy filed a lawsuit against the president of the Toronto Raptors in the aftermath of an altercation at last year's NBA Finals. However... New body cam footage is sparking charges of police racism toward a prominent black sports executive. The video shows a sheriff's deputy shoving Toronto Raptors president Masai Ujiri as he went to join his team after winning the NBA championship last year. Now, the deputy claimed Ujiri punched him and has sued. Tonight, Ujiri is countersuing, saying he was saddened by the ordeal and that he would continue to fight for racial justice. The Edmonton Eskimos made an announcement on February 14th. Despite any controversy, they would be keeping their team name. Also this month, Maria Sharapova retired from professional tennis. And one of the most fun and most memorable stories of the year occurred when 42-year-old Zamboni driver David Ayers got the call that his assistance as a backup goalie was required by the Carolina Hurricanes. Well, this moment, oh my goodness. What happened Saturday night isn't supposed to happen. Ayers was the emergency backup, literally the backup to the backup. When he was forced into service after two injuries and suited up for the Carolina Hurricanes. Clifford stopped by David Ayers. said to me, just have fun with it. Don't worry about how many goals go in. Just enjoy it. I said, uh, this is your moment. Have fun with it. So it was wild. It was pretty fun. 
The Hurricanes beat the Toronto Maple Leafs 6-3, and Ayers, who hails from Whitby, Ontario, made eight saves. Notable deaths in the month of February include former Blue Jays shortstop Tony Fernandez and Canadian freestyle moguls team member 19-year-old Braden Corota. On March 6th... Pocket Rocket Ori Reshore, who made the big team, although he was still eligible for junior hockey. The Pocket Rocket Henri Richard, who won 11 Stanley Cups with the Montreal Canadiens, died after a long battle with Alzheimer's disease. By the time he retired in 1975, he was a legend. Henri Richard again for the Hobbiton. This time he does pass to Brother Morris, and another blistering shot runs the count to 3-0 Montreal. In March, as COVID-19 began to take hold of the world, sports leagues began to cancel or postpone their seasons. The NBA announced an indefinite suspension of its regular season on March 11th. Breaking news here on CBS Sports HQ, and it is monster news. The NBA has suspended the season. The NHL, MLB, and CFL were among the many others who followed suit. More of the world's biggest sporting contests cancelled or postponed. That includes the uh, English Premier League and the Champions League as well. English soccer fans groaned as the Premier League was suspended, while Liverpool was on the verge of winning the title after a 30-year drought. In the midst of it all, Tom Brady announced that he would be leaving the New England Patriots. Shortly after, he signed a two-year contract with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The big question remained, though. Would the 2020 Tokyo Summer Olympics go ahead? Our country announced that Canadian athletes would not attend if the Games went ahead as scheduled. After mounting international pressure and a bit of time to consider... We agreed to postpone the Olympic Games. The Games were officially postponed until 2021. In April, the Calgary Stampede was officially cancelled due to the pandemic. And tragically this month, Edmonton Oilers forward Colby Cave died. The 25-year-old suffered a brain bleed. In May, we learned how the NHL was planning to move forward. The league and the players' union agreed on a return-to-play format if the season could be salvaged. Meanwhile, the Bundesliga, Germany's soccer league, was the first to restart. So that is just a very quick look at some of the major sporting events that occurred in the first half of 2020. And we're going to continue taking a look back at this past crazy year in sports. In the month of June, the PGA Tour resumed. Meanwhile, because of the pandemic, U Sports cancelled six national championships, including the Vanier Cup. Really big controversy in NASCAR this year. On June 10th, NASCAR banned the Confederate flag from all events. Later, driver Bubba Wallace found what looked like a noose hanging in his stall, and there was concerns that he was the victim of a hate crime. The FBI investigated, but the noose was actually an old garage door pull rope that was tied to look like a noose, and it was determined that no crime was committed. Tennis star Novak Djokovic tested positive for COVID-19 after he organized and took part in a highly criticized tennis exhibition. Then, on June 25th, a major moment for English soccer fans. After 30 years, Liverpool finally won the Premier League. But for fans who had waited a lifetime to see this moment, celebrations were dampened by limits on gathering size and travel restrictions. 
in July. The Toronto Blue Jays have been benched. The team was supposed to begin its season next week, but it appears the Canadian government isn't willing to play ball. The Blue Jays were denied approval to play in Toronto because of restrictions on travel and quarantine periods. Instead, their new home stadium would be in Buffalo, New York. As far as the NHL goes, Vancouver's bid to become a hub city. I'm thinking of Vegas or Dallas by a pool doesn't sound so bad on the off days. Everybody was talking about where the hub cities would be. In the end, Edmonton and Toronto were selected. And one of the NHL's most colorful players, Eddie Shack, passed away. Longtime Leafs fans would know the lyrics to this tune, right? Clear the track, here comes Shack. He knocks him down and he gives him a whack. Legendary Toronto Maple Leaf Eddie Shack, known as the entertainer. Shack played for six teams from 57 to 75. He won four cups with the Leafs. Also in the month of July, Major League Soccer returned with the MLS's back tournament at Disney World in Florida. Fans got a taste for empty arenas and fake crowd noise, which some people didn't mind and others hated. Oh, and everybody had an opinion on the name of the NHL's newest hockey team, the Seattle Kraken. Rumors surfaced that Seattle was finally going to reveal the official name of its NHL team. We are proud to give you the Seattle Kraken. Say what? At the start of August, the NHL started again. Protests had been ongoing since the death of George Floyd in May, and the movement for racial equality was felt in the world of sports as well. Earlier in the summer, the Washington Redskins changed their name after mounting pressure, particularly from sponsors and investors. Then, in the month of August... A man named Jacob Blake was shot by police in Wisconsin, which led to a historic moment in sports. First, it was the NBA and the WNBA, and then MLB, and now the NHL. League by league, we continue to hear players speaking out and seeing games postponed. Standing together here, it's more powerful than anything you can do. The boycott began Wednesday afternoon when the Milwaukee Bucks didn't show up to play against the Orlando Magic. We are calling for justice for Jacob Blake and demand the officers be held accountable. I think you have to make a statement. Changes have to be made. Also in August, on the 17th, the CFL cancelled its 2020 season because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The league had asked for a $30 million interest-free loan, but was denied. And near the end of the month, young Canadian star Alfonso Davies and his team Byron Munich overcame Paris Saint-Germain to win the Champions League final. In September, the Brooklyn Nets named Canadian Steve Nash as the team's new head coach. Then on September 4th, Canada's last hope in the NHL playoffs, the Vancouver Canucks, were knocked out. A week later, the Toronto Raptors were eliminated from the 2020 NBA playoffs in a Game 7 loss to the Celtics. The NFL kicked off its 101st season on September 10th, and there was a lot of conversation around just how many fans should be let into the arenas. On September 28th, a very unusual NHL season came to an end when the Tampa Bay Lightning defeated the Dallas Stars in Game 6 to win the Stanley Cup in Edmonton. And at the end of September, the Toronto Blue Jays were eliminated from the playoffs. In October, Canadian tennis player Eugenie Bouchard performed well at the French Open, but was knocked out in the third round. Later this month, the Los Angeles Dodgers would beat the Tampa Bay Rays to become World Series champions. Two baseball legends passed away this month, Bob Gibson and Joe Morgan. 
In the month of November, the Miami Marlins hired Kim Ng as their general manager, making her the highest-ranking woman in baseball operations in the major leagues. On November 15th, Dustin Johnson won the 84th Masters. Earlier in the season, he won the FedEx Cup, too. At the end of the month, 54-year-old Mike Tyson returned to the ring for an exhibition fight with 51-year-old Roy Jones Jr. Notable deaths this month include Canadian hockey players Howie Meeker and Fred Sasakamus, as well as one of the greatest soccer players of all time. Diego Maradona. When he was at his best, he had no equal. The soccer legend from Argentina died today at the age of 60. He had a heart attack at his home in Buenos Aires a week after surgery to remove a blood clot from his brain. And in his homeland of Argentina, he was revered. Famous for that hand of God goal in 1986, he led Argentina to a World Cup victory. The country's president has declared three days of national mourning. Now to the month of December. Like other teams this year, the Cleveland Indians had to make a choice, and they decided they would be dropping Indian from their name. Young Canadian soccer star Alfonso Davies truly had a remarkable year, and it only got better for him in December. Alfonso Davies received the biggest compliment of his young soccer career. He was voted on to the World 11. December 22nd was the first day of the NBA season. Today marks the beginning of the 2020 NBA season. And if it seems as though the last one just ended, you'd be right. The LA Lakers were crowned NBA champions just over two months ago. Hockey goes back to the bubble. December 25th, Christmas Day, the start of the WIHF World Junior Championship hosted in Edmonton. Meanwhile, the NHL geared up for a new season to start, December 31st, the first day of training camp for some teams, with the regular season set to begin on January 13th. Now, of course, we didn't have time to mention them all, but that is just some of the big stories in sports from this past year that had Canadians talking. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Imagine finding a wrapped gift on your doorstep with a note on top. You might be surprised, but you take it inside, you put it under your Christmas tree, and what is inside that wrapped package turns out to be a gift that would mean the whole world to your young son. So what was in that package? Well, to find out, let's talk to our next guest, Erica Macklin, who found that package on her doorstep this Christmas. Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, to start this story, let's go back a little bit further in time. Can you tell me about Paul and who he was? Well, Paul was my husband, and uh, he was in a workplace accident uh, in October of 2013 and uh, sustained burns that required skin graft surgery. And after the surgery, um, he passed a blood clot that traveled to his lungs and ended up passing away from that um, in November of 2013. I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was a it was a shock to everyone, but um, it was also a time where the community really came around us and surrounded us with love and and comfort and care, and so it really showed us just how truly kind people are. 
It's amazing when you go through a hardship like that and you see people reaching out and being so kind. It does remind you in the darkest of times of how much good there is in the world. Yes, exactly. And from my understanding, Paul also used to love playing the guitar. Yes. He was a very, very talented musician and singer, and uh, uh, music was definitely a huge part of our lives. It's how we met um, years and years and years ago um, through music, and it was something that he absolutely loved, and he loved sharing it with his family and friends, was always singing and playing guitar to them. So uh, as unfortunately uh, someone has to do when there is a death in in the family or a loved one passes away, you have to make those tough choices when you're going through their things, deciding what you'll keep and what you'll donate, what you'll get rid of. And Paul had a blue guitar that had a silver flame down the side of it. And you you saw this guitar and what did you end up doing with it? You, You made a tough choice. Yeah, so it was actually, it's a little child-sized guitar, actually. And um, we had picked it up before his accident. And we wanted to give it to him for Christmas, Charlie. And at the time, he was only just two years old. So we knew that it would be a while before he actually would play it. But... Paul just really loved it. He And I can't remember where we saw it, but he wanted to pick it up and eventually would teach Charlie how to play guitar. And uh, when he passed away, it was just a month before Christmas, and I couldn't bring myself to give the guitar to Charlie still. Um, I don't play guitar, so I knew I wouldn't be able to teach him. And, and the thought of anyone else, teaching him was just too painful at that time so I put it away and then some months later I decided that it was just something that was it just caused too many sad memories and so I decided to sell it on a Facebook bidding group a local group and someone bought it and I don't remember who it was this was about six years ago and someone bought it and that was the last that I really thought of it up until a week ago. <laughs> and then the doorbell rang and I went and there was a wrapped up gift just outside our front door. And it said to Charlie from your Steve Elf. And so I brought it in and I just put it under the Christmas tree. And then on Christmas morning when we were opening gifts, I came across the, this one and I gave it to Charlie and there was a little rolled up piece of paper with it, um, and it was a letter. So I took that off while Charlie was opening the gift. And the letter said that um, this was a gift for Charlie from the, from the Steve Stenels. And uh, it said that your mom will recognize the guitar. We bought it for a purpose and kept it through the years waiting for you to grow up. And it was always your guitar and that um, they hoped that he would discover joy of music, um, experimenting and playing the guitar, and that he was already off to an amazing start because his dad was a talented musician and, and that they wanted him to have this guitar that was always meant to be his. 
and it just took us all by complete surprise and we were just filled with so much gratitude because I I think that I got rid of it from an emotional place and now that it's back I just I couldn't be happier. It almost came back to you right when it needed to. Yeah, yeah, it really did and I you know I just thought I didn't know who I don't know who it was that dropped it off and so I decided just to make a little post in our in our Richmond community group on on Facebook to to publicly thank this person and to just say what a wonderful thing that they'd done for our family and that they had held on to this gift for so many years and they bought it with the intention of giving it back to Charlie at some point just filled me with so much love and, and joy. And uh, so I just posted it on Facebook and I had no idea. I knew that it was a touching story for us and it had meant a lot to us, but it just seems to have really touched so many people's hearts. And, uh, and I'm so thankful that I had the opportunity to give this person the recognition that they deserve, that they are such a wonderful, wonderful person and have just the, the most special heart. And I hope that they know that about themselves and that they, even though I don't know who they are to name them, I hope that they can know that they've made a huge, huge difference in our lives. What an incredibly special story, especially at this time of year. It's like a a story that you'd watch in a Christmas movie. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's what a few people have said, that uh, it it almost just doesn't seem real, um, that that somebody would, would think of doing this. It's just so special and so sweet. What thought crossed your mind when the doorbell rang, you opened the door, and there was this package, a fairly large package. I mean, it's a guitar, kid-sized guitar, but still a guitar wrapped inside a package with a note on top. What were you thinking in that moment? Well, I just, I, I don't really know. It was just something that I thought, okay, well, one of Charlie's friends or um, I, I participated in, in quite a few <laughs> of the uh, ninja groups that popped up in the spring during COVID and, and everything. And I thought, oh, somebody's remembered Charlie and they've they've got him a little gift to put under the tree. So I just put it under the tree and I, I didn't really think that it was really something that would be so memorable and 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 so exciting for us and charlie has a little brother as well so will they be sharing the guitar or i mean i know how christmas presents work my brother used to get something that i really wanted and i'd be trying to get it from him (laughs) well actually charlie charlie's the youngest he has uh two older brothers Um, so his, his, one of his older brothers has already been tuning it for him and, and his, uh, brother-in-law, I have a daughter that's, 
that's married and, and her husband plays guitar as well. So, um, so now, uh, they can all sit together and, and play and, and he can learn. And, and I'm, I've had a lot of offers uh, from people to teach Charlie. And so once COVID settles down and we can have someone come in, we'll definitely be doing that. So. Yeah. I was going to say one thing that I've learned from working in this business is that good stories tend to expand, that it starts with one special event that touches people's hearts and it just grows and grows and grows from there. So I'm not surprised that yeah. you've been getting offers from people who, <laughs> who are wanting to help teach young Charlie how to play that guitar. Yeah. And that, and that has just made me so happy too, that that by sharing this story, it's it's made people want to do things for others to make a difference in their lives and, and they've been thinking about how they can, how they can help neighbors and, and, and school friends. And, and so it's been really exciting to see how people want to, to make a difference. And I think this has given them the opportunity to think outside the box and, and how can they do something for someone else? Cause it just gives so much joy to everyone. It truly is a a good reminder, especially when it's been a year as tough as this one, a good reminder to to give a little to those around you. It doesn't have to be something that costs you any money. It can just be a nice gesture, but geez, it sure means the world. Yeah, it does. It really does. Erica, thank you so much for the conversation. Well, thank you. I I really appreciate uh, you giving me the opportunity to share this story.